Good afternoon to all of you. It's a privilege to be here with you and see some familiar faces and smiling faces. I'd like to thank you for your prayers on behalf of my mother-in-law and my uh, wife and the death of my mother-in-law recently. She was doing well until about three to four weeks ago and appeared she had a little stroke. Uh, she was not able to speak properly. And I could, we could tell something was not quite right because she didn't have two beers before she went to bed. <laughs> She's a good German. But um, <clears throat> she just seemed to run out of gas uh, in about three to four weeks. But uh, appreciate the kindness that uh, you have all shown towards her. You know, she'd come here and coming to church uh, the last year or two was really the highlight of her life, just to be able to come and talk with people and see people. So, Again, thank you very much for all of that. Several weeks ago, I gave a sermon about a subject that most of the world simply doesn't understand. And I think for even many of us in the church of God, I, I don't think we fully understand the subject. Because if we did, we wouldn't have some of the personal problems that we have. And we probably wouldn't have some of the uh, issues come up that do come up from time to time in congregations all around the world. The subject that I addressed several weeks ago was the battle for your mind. The battle for your mind. We talked about how Satan uses a variety of devices to try and influence each and every one of us and how he attempts to beam thoughts into our minds that will determine how we act, because our thoughts determine our actions. And he tries to deceive us into taking actions that will eventually hurt us or destroy us. And we read 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, where it talks about Satan's a roaring lion, that he walks around seeking who he may devour who he can get to and begin to work on. And we're told there that we need to be vigilant and resist Satan. But, you know, you can't resist him if you don't recognize what he's trying to do, if you don't recognize the methods and the devices that he's trying to use to get to us. In that sermon, we talked about several things. One was... We read the biblical description of Satan. Now, the world really doesn't believe that Satan exists in many cases. Well, he's just a figment of somebody's imagination. And yet the Bible describes what Satan is like. You know, he tries to, uh, he's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's called the wicked one. He's a rebel against authority. He broadcasts attitudes, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2. He beams attitudes at us. And if we begin to feel like, well, nobody's going to tell me what to do. You know, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it the, you know, just the way I want to do it. Nobody's going to tell me. Satan can work on those things. But he beams those attitudes of rebellion against authority. He's an accuser. Of the brethren. He spreads rumors. This is how Satan operates. He is real. I remember when I first <clears throat> learned about the church and I learned about spirit beings, 
I was in a bookstore one time, and I picked up a book, a fairly thick book. It was written by a husband and wife, and they were looking at paranormal situations, the spirit world. And I started leafing through the book, and they'd got into seances with uh, infrared photography, and they were taking pictures. Here's this picture of a guy floating above the stage. (laughs) and a rope that goes up to nowhere, and somebody's climbing it. Now, there may have been gimmicks behind this. But by and large, they documented the fact that the spirit world does exist. I put the book down quietly and looked at something else. There was enough evidence there to convince that there's something that science can't understand. But there is a spirit world. Satan does exist, even though the world doesn't think especially the scientific world, doesn't really think that Satan exists. We also discussed in the sermon methods that Satan uses. We talked about the weapons in his arsenal that he uses to try and get to you and me. He uses doubts. He tries to plant doubts in people's mind, and our society today is filled with that. People doubt that God exists. They doubt that the Bible is inspired. They doubt a lot of things, but no such thing as, as true values. You know, the values are just something that we create. He tries to discourage people. You know, if a mate dies or if someone close to you dies or you lose your job or you go through a divorce or something, the Satan will try and play on you. Well, there's no, there's no, no reason to live anymore. Nobody likes me. I lost my job. You know, they used to sing a song in Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts. Nobody, what, what, how does it go? Nobody loves me, everybody hates me, let's go eat worms. You just, no reason to live anymore. But there are reasons to live. You know, our example is important to others. And we'll look at some other scriptures that show that God allows things to happen. He gives us opportunities to learn and grow in a number of ways. But Satan has a series of things that he can use, devices that he can use. He appeals to human pride. I realize none of us have any of that, so we can go on and not talk about that. No, we all have these things, buttons that he can press. He uses the lusts of the eyes and the lusts of the flesh. Oh, I just love this, or I love that, or I love to watch television every night for hours and hours and hours. Or I love to do this or love to do that. Love to drink until I get drunk because it helps me solve my problems. He spreads lies. He makes accusations, spreads rumors. He uses offenses. If he's a minister, he shouldn't have offended me like that. Or that person's a brother or sister. They shouldn't have said that to me. This can't be God's church. I'm leaving. Satan will use these methods, these efforts. And he talks about the cares of the world. Jesus talked about that. This searching after wealth, wanting to be recognized as somebody important, uh, getting caught up in, in worldly pursuits that crowd out the spiritual dimensions of life, the most important things. We talked about that last time. And then we also talked about the reason. Why do we have to fight these spiritual battles? Why why do we have to go through all these trials and tribulations? And we explained that 
Trials and tribulations and spiritual battles are part of a character-building process. When we face a trial, we have a decision to make. Will I do this or will I do this? Somebody offers you to, hey, why don't we go out and have fun tonight? And I've got something in my pocket here. It's a drug, but, you know, it won't hurt you. But it really does interesting things to your mind. Let's go try it. You have a decision to make. I will. I'll risk it. Or I'm not going to play with that. I'm not going down that road. We have a decision to make. And God sees the character that we're building or the character we're eroding depending on how we make these decisions. He allows us to reap what we sow. And if we can connect the dots right, even though we make a bad decision, we can learn and we can grow and realize I'm not going to make that decision again. Unfortunately, some decisions can't be remade in this life because there are certain consequences that come from those decisions. And we may have to learn the hard way. I want you to notice something. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. You know, there's an idea that floats around in Protestant circles, probably Catholic circles also, that uh, God has predetermined exactly what you're going to do in your life. He knows everything that you're going to do. Well, that's not quite true. God is predetermined to call, or predestined, predetermined to call a group of people that they will be ready, made ready for Christ's return. But he doesn't predetermine every aspect of our life. God has made us free moral agents. He gives us the opportunity to choose to make decisions. Moses told the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15, and these are the children of the parents that came out of Egypt. They saw their parents make bad decisions, wander for 40 years in the wilderness till they all died. Now Moses is talking to the second generation that saw the bad decisions that their parents made. And he's addressing these younger people just before they went into the promised land. And Moses said, see, I've set before you life and good, death and evil. You've got choices to make. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, this is one choice, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go in to possess. This is one choice. The other choice is, but if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away, you're sucked in by peer pressure. It's easier to go that way. Everybody's going that way. But if your heart turns away so you do not hear and you're drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land in which you uh, cross over the Jordan to go and possess. And I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. And then Moses says, therefore, choose life 
That's really a better choice. That's really a wiser choice. That both you and your descendants may live. Sometimes we can make decisions that will impact not only ourselves, but the next generation and possibly the next generation after that. Because decisions have consequences. So life is full of choices. We have spiritual battles to fight, as we mentioned last time. In the sermon today, I'd like to talk about how to win spiritual battles. How to win spiritual battles. Because we're all going to fight them. Even people in the world are fighting these battles, but they don't understand what's going on. As a result of God opening your minds, bringing you into contact with his truth, you have a perspective that the world simply doesn't have. It'll have one day. But today, most people don't understand what we're talking about. I want to talk about how to win spiritual battles, and I want to focus on weapons that God has given us to use. God has given us an arsenal of weapons that the world doesn't understand, doesn't use. They try to use it. But without another ingredient, they don't really understand how to use it. I want to explain how to use some of these weapons, give some examples. But first of all, I wanted to explain just a little bit why Satan wants to deceive and destroy us as human beings. What's his motive? Why is he out to deceive and destroy? Why does he want to you know, get into people's minds and get them off in a wrong direction? And it's not just people in the church. It's people in the world. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28, let's go back and look at a couple of these things. You may have heard the story about the Frenchman and the Englishman that were kind of uh, discussing back and forth who was the most righteous culture, who was the most uh, 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 noble culture. And so they were arguing back and forth, and they weren't making any progress. And finally, the Frenchman said, look, let's go back to basics. In the very beginning, Satan did not go up to Eve and in perfect French say, Madame, I'm going to try and deceive you. He said, no. He walked up to her and he said, hello, love, would you like an apple? <laughs> Obviously, Satan was British and not French. <laughs> Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, 27, and 28. There's a perspective here of why God created human beings. Then God said, let us make man, human beings, men and women, in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowls of the air, the cattle, over every creeping thing. So God created man, human beings, In his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female. What we're told here is that we did not evolve from monkeys, even though we act like monkeys sometimes. We did not evolve from monkeys. We are not naked apes, as some people have described human beings. We're not the product of lovesick amoeba. 
and two little things that got together. We were created in the image of God for a purpose. We go to uh, Romans chapter 8. Again, this gets into why Satan is trying to mess up the minds of human beings. He understands what the purpose is for human life. In Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God, people that are becoming sons and daughters of God, to become part of God's family. For you did not receive a spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we can cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit of sonship, we can become part of God's family. That's why we have been created, to become sons and daughters of God. The Spirit himself or itself bears witness with our spirit that we are or we are becoming or we can become the children of God. You know, your children will grow up to become like you, unfortunately, sometimes. <laughs> you know, one of the pastors that uh, I worked with early on coming into the church, he met my brother at the feast. He said, I walked up behind this guy, and I, I, he said, I said in my mind, this guy is a winnail. He walks like a winnail. <laughs> So he tapped the guy on the shoulder and said, uh, uh, <clears throat> is Doug your brother? My brother said, no, Doug is my brother. <laughs> but, you know, our kids will walk like us. They'll talk like us. If we fly off the handle, they will fly off the handle like we do. If we're courteous and respectful to people, they will be courteous and respectful to people. They'll walk in our footsteps. They'll become like we are. But we have been created to become like God is. To develop the mind of God and the character of God. If we have the mind of God, we're going to think like God does. Think like Jesus Christ does. And then we'll begin to act like God would act in certain situations, in any situation. So Satan understands this incredible purpose for human life. Now, ladies, if you're feeling left out, you can turn to 2 Corinthians or put it in your book, in your notebook, 2 Corinthians 6, verses 17 and 18. It says, you shall become my sons and daughters. That's our future, whether we're male or female, to become part of God's family, to grow up and become like Jesus Christ. I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2, where this incredible future is talked about. Hebrews chapter 2. You can read the early verses. It talks about in verse 1, Therefore we must give more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away, or we let these things just drip out of a bucket. Let the truth drift away. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, this incredible opportunity 
Verse 5, has God not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels? God has not put the world to come in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, and then he's quoting the Psalms here, where David says, what is a man, what is a human being that you're mindful of him? The answer, you've made him, verse 7, a little lower than the angels. You crowned him, human beings, with glory and honor. And you set him or set them over the works of your hands. And you've put all things under his feet, but not yet. That's what's coming. We've got an incredible future. But Satan knows that. And he doesn't want you to be there. He doesn't want you to be part of the kingdom of God or the family of God because he's not going to be. And misery loves company. And he's going to try and destroy and discourage people, especially that God is calling. One other scripture in 1 John chapter 3. Again, Satan understands this, and he's going to try and discourage you from achieving this or experiencing this. 1 John chapter 3, the first several verses. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that you should be called children of God. You're not naked apes. You're not monkeys. You've been called to become children of God. That's why you've been created. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, when Christ returns, we shall be like him and we shall see him as he is. We'll be like him. We'll see him as he is. We're going to have an opportunity to reign on this earth as kings and priests and teachers and leaders to rule over nations, as it mentions in Revelation chapter 3, eventually the entire universe. That's hard for us to comprehend. But Satan is not going to be part of that picture. You have been called to be part of that picture, to fit in to that picture. Not to go off to heaven, sit on a cloud and play a harp and and twiddle your thumbs and whatever else you do up there but to reign on this earth, to spread the truth around this earth, to explain to people what human life is all about. This is why Satan wants to deceive and destroy and discourage because he doesn't want you to be part of that. That's powerful. That's powerful. So if we understand why we have to fight spiritual battles, we're not going to become part of God's family unless we develop the character of God. Unless God knows that when he makes us spirit beings, that we will not abuse that power and abuse that privilege that will not go off in a wrong direction. And the last time in the sermon we talked about Apostle Paul's um, admonishments, his advice, his encouragement. You know, he mentioned First Timothy. He says that Christians, we need to fight the good fight of faith. We need to be ready to fight the good fight of faith and lay hold of eternal life. 
when you understand what the purpose of life is, don't let go of that understanding. Don't let someone steal your crown by discouraging you or deceiving you. Second Timothy talks about being good soldiers. We need to be good soldiers. Soldiers are trained to learn to use the weapons that they are you're trained to fight with. I had some ROTC in college, spent a little bit of time on an army base, and one of the training routines that they go through is you've got to take a rifle apart and put it back together. Then you have to take it apart blindfolded <laughs> and put it back together. In case you're fighting, your rifle jams, you've you got to be able to do these things. You know, we had a chance to uh, tour Fort Niagara um, several about a month or so ago with my grandson. And one of the exhibits there was a fellow dressed up like a colonial soldier, and he was going to fire a muzzle-loading musket, a flintlock rifle. So he said, look, I'm going to load this, and on three, I'm going to fire, and you're going to see a lot of smoke and flame and everything else. So he goes, one, two, three, click. And nothing happened. He said, we'll try it again. So he adjusted the flint a little bit and said, on three now. One, two, three, click. Nothing happened. He said, you know, it was like this in battle. (laughs) He said, in some battles, some guys never fired their rifle because it didn't work. But he had to, he played around with his. He knew what he had to adjust. He adjusted the flint, did some things, put some more powder in it, and did this and that. And eventually it fired. But soldiers are trained to use weapons. God has given us some weapons that the world doesn't have. But we've got to use them. We've got to learn how to use them. Part of the advice that Paul gives, and we started on this last time, but we didn't finish it. We go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Now, this is some of the advice that Paul was giving to Christian soldiers, people that he was urging to fight a good fight. He explains, as we covered in the previous sermon, what we're dealing with. Verse 11 of chapter 6, he says, Put on the whole armor of God, the whole armor of God, not just a piece here and there, but the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the wiles or the devices or the deceptive operations or weapons of Satan. Put these things on. And then he he tells us, you're not fighting a physical fight. You're fighting a spiritual battle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness who use the dark side of the force to try and get to people. The rulers of darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Then he gets into talking about the specific parts of the armor. And I want to talk a little bit about this. Because we need to understand what we have to work with. What we need to work with. Because you can't fight spiritual battles on your own. Because Satan has weapons that, that we don't have. But we have spiritual weapons that are better than his. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Verse 14, he said, stand, therefore, having your waist girded with truth. Your waist girded with truth. 
Now you can jot some of these scriptures down. We don't need to turn to all of them. But Jesus said in John 17, 17, this is part of the prayer that he offered the night before he was crucified. It's a teaching prayer. He says in John 17, 17, Thy word, God, is truth. Your word is truth. When you understand what the truth is, you're not going to be deceived by lies because you're going to recognize and know what the truth is. Somebody comes up to you and smiles and said, I'm your dad. I'm going to take care of you. You look at him and say, you're not my dad. (laughs) You don't look like him. You don't talk like him. You're not. It's a lie. When we know what the truth is, you're not going to be deceived by some of these things that float around. Having your waist girded with the truth. The truth is like a belt. If you don't put the belt on, what happens? You might lose your pants. (laughs) And when that happens, which is going to happen to some of these people that walk around and they're barely holding their pants on, once in a while they, they drop. And then it's embarrassing. It's humiliating. But if your waist is girded with the truth, you're not going to be embarrassed. You're not going to be humiliated. You're not going to be deceived. If you know what the truth is, Jesus knew. David said pretty much the same thing in Psalm 119, verse 151. He says, all your commandments are truth. There's a commandment that says you shall not commit adultery. Well, you know, we're we're progressive today. (laughs) We know better. We don't have to be limited by these Old Testament ideas. No, you commit adultery, there's going to be consequences and it's going to be very unfortunate. See, there, are, there is such a thing as truth. People say there's no God today. The Bible says a person says there's no God is a fool. And that is the truth. That is the truth. So if your waist is girded with a strong belt of truth, you're not going to be deceived. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, where... Satan was trying to work on his mind. Satan was quoting scripture. And Jesus said we need to live by every word of God. We don't take a little thing here, a little thing there, take it out of context. We need to live by every word of God. And if your goal is to prove the truth and then live by it, you're not going to be deceived, you're not going to be embarrassed, you're not going to be humiliated, And you're not going to lose out on the kingdom of God. Truth is very powerful. This is why we're told in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 21. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 21. To prove all things and to hold fast to those things that are right and true. To prove all things, examine everything. You don't believe something if you haven't proven it. If you haven't nailed it down, if you hear something in church, you hear somebody say something, prove it. Nail it down. I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people are floating around today. Well, they kind of believed that the Sabbath was was what we should do, and they, they kind of believed that we probably should keep the holy days and that we probably shouldn't keep Christmas. 
But then people came along, younger guys, and said, well, God will love you if you do that. You're honoring him if you keep Christmas. After it's Christ's birthday. And, of course, you want to honor him that way. This is all wrong. He wasn't born on Christmas. It was the birthday of a sun god. The Catholic Church brought these things in, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, to make it easier for pagans to become, quote-unquote, Christians. Because they could keep their old customs, have a ball, and still pretend to be Christians. The truth is powerful. And if you've taken the time to nail it down, you're not going to be deceived. And you don't have to be discouraged. But the Bible talks about this. Having your waist girded with the truth. And you bind it up that way. And then next it talks about putting on the breastplate of righteousness. You know, a person didn't go into battle in the Middle Ages when they had spears and, and um, <clears throat> uh, jousting with uh, lances and uh, fighting with swords. You had this big breastplate. The Romans would wear those things. Made out of steel or brass or something that would protect you from a blow. You don't get into a sword fight without a, a breastplate on. It's there for protection. But it says put on the breastplate of righteousness. What is righteousness? Not self-righteousness. Psalm 119, verse 172 says, All thy commandments are righteousness. When you're faced with a decision, you want to make a righteous decision. I know it's wrong to worship false gods. I'm not going to keep Christmas because that was the birthday of the sun god. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to put another god before the true god. Now, I could shade my income tax a little bit. You'll be filling that out in a couple of months. Nobody will know. It's all a cash deal. There's no paper trail. I can probably get away with this. A person that doesn't lie won't do that. Because the scriptures say we should not lie. We should not give a false witness. This is your strength. This is your breastplate. If you won't lie, you won't fudge. You tell one little lie, then it's easier to tell another one. And if you're in the habit of not telling the truth, you better remember everything you've ever said. <laughs> because you're liable to tell one, thing's one, th- one person one thing and tell somebody else something else, and then they're going to get together and say, he didn't tell the truth. I've talked with people that have had to deal with ministers not ones that are with us currently. But they say, well, this guy told me this, but he told you that. He's not telling somebody the truth. And it totally destroys the credibility of a leader that does things like that. So put on the breastplate of righteousness, determined to tell the truth, determined to live the truth. Make your word count. Make it be true. Don't consciously shade something. We talk about little white lies. (laughs) That doesn't fit. A lie is a lie. And we can't do those things. But Paul is likening all this to spiritual armor. And if you develop the character, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to shade the truth. I'm going to be very open and honest. 
then God sees that. He says, there is a person developing the character that I'm going to need. If I'm going to make that person a spirit being, I'm going to know that they're going to be true to their word. They're going to follow my instructions. They're going to obey my commandments. Having your feet shod with the gospel of peace. Okay, what is the gospel of peace? Let's look up a couple of scriptures. Go back to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 165. A number of scriptures that we could go to. Psalm 119, verse 165. Great peace have have, have those who love your law. Great peace have those who love your law. You know, if you love the laws of God and you determine to live your life by the laws of God, you can have peace of mind. Because you know that you're doing the right thing. If you know what's right and you don't do what's right, you're going to have trouble sleeping at night until you sear your conscience. And then you'll lie, you'll do various things and go to sleep. Big deal. Great peace of those who love the law of God. Again, it has to do with keeping the commandments of God. If you keep the commandments of God, then God's going to hear your prayers. You might say, well, God just doesn't hear my prayers. Well, you've got to examine your life. There may be reasons why God is not answering your prayers. And we'll look at that in a little bit. Psalm 1, excuse me, Proverbs 16, verse 7. It says, when a man's ways, when a woman's ways please God, he'll make even... That person's enemies be at peace with that person. To be at peace. The gospel of peace is learning how to bring peace, how to experience peace of mind, how to bring peace to the world. We're told in the scriptures that human beings don't understand the way to peace. The way to peace is not building atomic bombs. The way to peace is not cutting bargains with another nation. Well, let's not tell anybody, but we'll do this for you if you do this for us. The way to peace is learning to follow the laws of God, to keep the laws of God. And when the nations are taught to obey the laws of God, there will be peace, but not until then. So part of the armor of God is this preparation of the gospel of peace, understanding the way to peace. And as David said, those who love your law will be at peace. Then verse 16 says, taking the shield of faith. If you're fighting, uh, if you're jousting with somebody back in the Middle Ages, you get on a horse, give you this big lance, but they give you a shield that you can deflect the blows that are coming along. Or if you're fighting with swords, you've got a shield. Or you're fighting with bows and arrows, you got a shield. You can deflect these things that are coming. But it talks about the shield of faith. I was reading a book uh, written by atheists recently. And they said, faith is believing in something for which there is no evidence. No, that's superstition. (laughs) 
That's hopeful thinking. That's not what faith is. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. There are elements of faith that are described in the Bible, and we could you know, spend a whole sermon on this, but we're not going to spend a whole sermon. Hebrews 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. You know, this podium is substance. There's something here. This is not my imagination. <laughs> it's real. You can touch it. You can feel it. Substance has to do with the promises of God. You can read them. You obey, you're going to be blessed. You disobey, there's going to be consequences. That's substance. That's real. And if you connect the dots and watch people, you'll see this happens. People that lie, steal, cheat, they'll get in trouble. It's just a matter of time. You know, when our boys were growing up, where we lived in Massachusetts, there was a park up the street from us. If I would come home 11, 12 o'clock at night after some visits, generally there were two or three kids up there on the swings just talking and doing whatever. And I knew one of the boys that was there because he wanted to play basketball in our driveway. And I told our boys, I said, uh, watch out for this young man. He's going to get in trouble. Of course, my boys, well, how do you know? <laughs> how do you know? I said, because he's up there most of the nights when I drive by, 11, 12 o'clock at night. He's not at home. I think both of his parents worked, so they weren't at home even in the afternoons. That was why he'd want to come down to our place, because either my wife or myself would be at home in the afternoons to play with the boys or do some things when I came home from school. But I said, watch him. He's going to get in trouble. And sure enough, he got in trouble. He wasn't being guided. He wasn't being directed. He didn't understand there was things that were right and things that were wrong. But this gets back to faith. It's the substance of things hoped for. You know what you believe in. You prove it. That's substance. And then the evidence of things not seen. How do you know there is a God? You can study history. You can see where God intervened time and time and time again, especially on behalf of his people. Talk to people that have had God intervene in their life. God is real. So when the Bible talks about evidence of things not seen, you should be able to look around and find evidence that God is real, that he answers prayers, that he's blessed certain nations because of his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, where are they? They're around. You can find it. Faith is not believing in something for which there's no evidence. Faith is in believing something because there is evidence there. See, this is part of the armor that we can put on. It's, it's, we need to take time to prove these things, to nail these things down. Because you're going to wind up dealing with situations where somebody's going to mock your beliefs, make fun of the fact that you believe in God, that you believe in this old book that's full of stories. You actually believe that? If you've nailed these things down, you said, yeah, I believe that. And it's not filled with just stories. There's archaeological evidence. There's historical evidence. 
it makes sense out of why the world is the way it is? When you understand these things, you've got some armor on. So you can take the shield of faith, trusting God. We can use that faith and defend off the darts of Satan that he will try and beam at us. Then it talks about the helmet of salvation. You know, you put on a helmet to protect your head, to protect your brain, to protect your mind. You know, if you watch guys that are building houses or working on construction sites, they wear hard hats because things drop out of the sky. <laughs> Wrenches and nails and bits and pieces of plaster or, or parts of uh, brick walls or whatever, it drops. You know, I had a... I found a hard hat one time when we were building a house in Phoenix. I put it on and walked up to the construction site. And I said, <laughs> I said, I just want to come up and see what you guys are doing. This is our home. I really appreciate the extra work. I said, can I bring you guys a, a six-pack of beer at the end of uh, your work day? The guy looked at me and said, are you trying to get us in trouble? Are you an inspector? We're not supposed to drink on the job. <laughs> I said, I'm not an inspector. Well, how do we know? you got a hard hat on. <laughs> I said, no, it's my property, but I just wanted to thank you for what you're doing. And they, they, they still didn't want the six-pack because they knew they could have gotten in trouble. <laughs> but just by wearing the hat gave a certain impression. You were to put on the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation involves knowing what your future is going to be and not having any doubts about that. Now, we could go to a number of scriptures, but let's go to a couple in the book of Job. Do we have the faith and the confidence and the trust that Job had? Now, he was going through some really difficult times. He lost his family, lost his possessions. His friends were trying to encourage him with not two cents but five bucks. Now, Job, you need to just curse God and die. You're in a bad way. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. Why didn't he do that? Because Job understood what salvation involved. Notice, we read these scriptures at uh, funerals to give people hope. Job 14, verses 14 and 15 says, If a man dies, shall he live again? And Job says, All the days of my hard service will I wait. Wait for what? Till my change comes. You shall call, I will answer you, and you will have a desire to the work of your hands. You could plug in 1 Corinthians 15, where it talks about when Christ returns at the last trump, the dead will rise incorruptible. They're going to come out of the grave. They're going to be spirit beings. Job had that hope. God recorded this for us so that we could have hope in the future. I remember talking with my mother-in-law uh, several weeks before she died. And I said, Mom, how are you doing? She said, I can still touch my toes. I got up out of her chair and bent over and touched her toes. You know, a week or two before she died, I said, Mom, how are you doing? She said, I'm tired. I'm tired. But she had a hope that she'll come up in the resurrection. See, if we've got a hope of our salvation, we know what's down the road. It's going to give us strength, and we can deal with the challenges that come along. 
Job 19, verse 25. This is called the wisdom literature in the Old Testament because there are concepts here that we don't find in scientific studies. We find them in revealed studies, or the revealed scriptures. Verse 25 of uh, Job chapter 19, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at the last on earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. I'm going to come out of that grave and I'm going to see God like he is. These are powerful things. These are powerful weapons that we can use to deal with discouragement. In Ephesians 6, it talks about prayer. It talks about using the sword of the Spirit. We'll talk about those a little bit more in just a minute. But I wanted to mention and go through this because we didn't have time to do this or didn't take time to do this last time where Paul says you put on the whole armor of God, not just a helmet, not just a sword, but the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, to put all these things on because Satan will find where our weak spot is. Satan knows us. He knows what our tendencies are. He knows what our weak spots are. He knows where he can get at us. And this is why we need to ask God, God, show me. Show me where I've got a weakness, where I've got a weak spot. Help me to see it. Help me to understand it. And strengthen me in those areas. Because we're all going to have our weak spots. But we need to consider what Paul is saying here, putting on the whole armor of God. Okay, let's look at some weapons then that God has given us to use. Weapons are things that we can do. Weapons are things that we can use. Uh, and we can use these weapons to win spiritual battles. Satan doesn't have to have the upper hand. He doesn't have to get the upper hand on us. If we know the weapons we have to use and if we use them. First thing I want to talk about is prayer. Now, we can brush this out. Well, everybody prays. No, we're talking about talking to God, talking to the God of this universe. Talking to your Father is not self-talk. It's it's just not there to kind of make you feel good. You know, if you're a younger person, girl or boy, and somebody starts to bully you on the way home from school, what do you do? You run home and say, Dad! (laughs) Mom! Help me. Now, if they're a loving father and a loving mother, they're going to gather you in their arms and say, I'll help you. I'm going to go talk to that boy's mother (laughs) or his dad. I'm going to intervene on your behalf. We're talking, when we talk to God, we're talking to our father who cares for us who's called us to become part of his family. That's who we're talking to. And prayers work. One time whenever I was painting a fence in Pasadena with our boys, I think they were like 
maybe three and five. And uh, I had a screwdriver, and I was fixing some screws, putting, trying to fix the pickets on the fence. And I think I gave it to one of the boys, and then he dropped it somewhere. I said, where's the, where's the screwdriver? And, I don't know. I said, well, look, let's get busy and find it. And the one boy looked at me and started running into the house. He said, come here, come here, come here. We need to look for this and find it. Why are you going into the house? He said, I'm going to pray, Dad. I'm going to pray and ask God to help us find the screwdriver. (laughs) He went in and prayed and came out, and we found the screwdriver (laughs) because it was in a field, and the weeds were, and the grass were probably a foot, two feet high. And we looked around, didn't find it. And when I said, look, help me, he ran into the house. He said, I want to pray. And we found it. Another little story on prayers that... uh, one of the boys, I won't mention names, but he was the oldest. <laughs> we were both sick, and I called somebody in the office and I said, would you stop home after work and, and, and anoint us because we're both not feeling well. So one of the elders stopped by and anointed us, and then that night I got down with my son, and we're praying beside his bed, and he starts to pray. And he says, God, please make me better tonight and make Daddy better tomorrow. And I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> I'd like to get better tonight, too. <laughs> but it, he was asking. He was asking. That's what God wants us to do. You know, prayer is not self-talk. It's not there to just you know, help us feel better. We have an opportunity to talk to our Father and to ask for help, to ask for guidance, to ask for direction, and to thank him for what he does. You know, in Psalm 55, verse 17, David said he prayed morning, noon, and evening. He took time three times a day to pray, to talk with God. Daniel prayed three times a day, Daniel 6, verse 10, even under the threat of being persecuted and thrown in jail. Because people watched him. They knew what he would do morning, noon, and evening, and they wanted to trap him. He said, anybody that prays and asks anything besides, or to anybody besides the king, we're going to get. And they got him. But then God intervened. You know, Jesus prayed all night, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, before he chose the 12 disciples. How do you pray all night? What do you talk about? He probably talked about each one of the 12. Their good points, their limitations, Talk these things over with God and ask for guidance. Show me what I need to be doing. Help me understand. I'm laying the foundation for the future church of God that's going to go on for several uh, several, uh, thousand years. They're going to be part of the foundation for the coming kingdom of God. These choices are important. I need your help. I need your guidance. They're not just my buddies that we go fishing together. We're laying the groundwork for the kingdom of God. And he asked for help and he asked for guidance. You know, we read the model prayer. You can go to that in uh, Matthew chapter 6. I grew up in several Protestant churches and we always went through this and repeated the Lord's Prayer on Sunday morning. 
But it's not there to just pray in rote, just to kind of repeat the words. This is a model that we can follow. And if you're learning how to pray, you can open the Bible, lay it on your bed, get down on your knees, and read this and talk to God. Jesus said in verse 5, When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets where they can be seen. You know, we spent uh, six weeks, I think, in Jordan and Israel one summer. And every day uh, when the prayer call comes from the Muslim uh, minarets, people roll out their little rugs are in the middle of the street, uh, wherever they happen to be, and they're down there praying on their rug, and everybody sees them. Uh, it's not about that. You walk around Jerusalem, you see these ultra-Orthodox people. They've got little tassels hanging out from underneath their shirt or their coat. That's to let you know that they have a prayer shawl on. So you can see their righteousness is dangling from underneath their coat. Now, they're sincere, probably, mostly. <laughs> now, we're not a judge of their heart, but it's a very outward show. That's not what this is about. Jesus said in verse 6, when you pray, go into your room. Go in private and talk to God. When you pray, don't use vain repetitions. Don't just go over the same thing over and over and over. It was people do when they say the rosary. Holy Mary, Mother of God, da 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 And do that 10, 15, 20 times. Or the uh, people uh, that are Hindus or Buddhists where they walk by these prayer wheels and just spin these prayer wheels and all these prayers go up to God. You don't even have to say anything. Just spin the wheel. You go to Las Vegas, do the same thing. Spin the wheel up there and hope that you win. Yeah, I don't want to be sacrilegious, but these are, these are things that people get into and they feel righteous doing it. And yet the instructions we find here are very different. Verse 9, In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father who is in heaven. God, I'm coming before you as the creator of this universe. You've made us in your image. You've given us life and breath. You've opened our minds to understand your truth. Father, thank you for that. So you've got a concept in your mind of who you're talking to. Holy, hallowed be your name. Your name is holy. I'm not going to take it in vain. I'm not going to treat it lightly, and I'm not going to pray lightly. Your kingdom come. God, we need your kingdom to come. This world is not going to solve its problems. We need your kingdom to come. We need Christ to return. And, Father, help us be ready for that. Help us get ready for that. And you can read down through the rest of the prayer. It talks about uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive others. Well, we want to be forgiven, but sometimes it's hard to forgive other people. You know, well, they poked me in the nose. Or they poked me in the eye. They trampled on my toe. They said something bad about me. I'll never forgive. Can't function that way. Your prayer is extremely important. I want to look at one other scripture. Go back to Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 15. I mentioned this earlier. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 15. <clears throat> Isaiah is delivering a pretty blistering message to the nation of Israel and to the Israelite peoples. He's talking about the nation is sick. You can read down through the Earlier part of the chapters, verse 14, he says, Your new moons and your appointed feast my soul hates. These are not the biblical holy days. 
you Jeroboam changed the holy days. And the Israelite nation kept keeping those wrong days. So this is what God is talking about. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, setting them on pagan holidays, is what I hate. They're a trouble to me. Down in verse 15, when you spread out your hands praying, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear because your hands are full of blood. You've been sinning. You've been breaking my laws, breaking my commandments. And then you want to pray? You can go to uh, Jeremiah, where Jeremiah delivers pretty much the same message. He said, don't even pray for these people because they've turned their back on me. They've ignored my laws. Don't even pray for them. They're going to have to learn the hard way. And so we want to pray to God. We want to ask him to do things for us. And we're told in the scripture that, God will, that God's ears are open to our prayers if we're righteous. If we're determined to live by the laws of God, then God will hear and God will intervene. So prayer is important. Bible study is important. And I'm not just talking about reading, you know, punch the clock. I read my five verses today. I'm done. Now uh, I'm off to do what's really more important. We read last time in Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 to 20, where the advice to kings was to make your own copy of the law and then study that law. Now, this applies to queens, too. Make your own copy of the law. Study it daily. Let those thoughts run through your mind so that when decisions come up and need to be made, you've got something running through your mind. You're asking the question, what would Jesus Christ do in this situation? How would God handle the situation? You know, if you're doing something you know you shouldn't be doing, ask yourself, would Jesus Christ do this? And back your mind into a corner. And don't let it out until it answers, honestly. Well, I'm doing this. Everybody understands. Everybody's doing this. But would Jesus Christ do it? If he wouldn't, we better get rid of it. Would Jesus Christ have six beers before he went to bed just to forget things? And he had plenty to forget. People were trying to kill him? No, he wouldn't do that. Would Jesus Christ sit and watch pornography? No. He wouldn't do that. Would Jesus Christ tell a string of white lies? No. See, if we understand what's in the book by studying the laws of God, we have our own copy, we're studying it. If we have the attitude that David had, Psalm 119, let's turn back there quickly. <clears throat> It's one thing to read the Bible. It's another thing to have an attitude that David had that we find coming through loud and strong in Psalm 119. <clears throat> Looking at verse 18, here's David's attitude. David said, open my eyes that I may see the wondrous things from your law. You know, many people today are told the law is done away with. This is old covenant stuff. We don't need it today. We've been freed from the burden of the law. David is going to be king over Israel. 
This is the perspective that David had and will have when he's resurrected. God, open my eyes that I may see the wondrous things in your law. Why do you have these dietary guidelines? Why do you have the health principles that are there? Why do you say that lying is wrong? David wanted to understand those things. He came to understand those things. He came to be able to connect the dots, to understand cause and effect. And he made wise decisions for the most part. Attitude again, verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Help me to understand. Give me understanding and I shall keep your law. Help me understand why I should do certain things, why I shouldn't do other things. Help me understand. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. You keep those Old Testament laws? Don't you know any better? No, I want to keep them. I delight in keeping them. I know it's good for me. It's going to be good for the world. Something else, just as an aside here, but it's also here. Verse 31. David said, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things. How much television do you watch on this vast wasteland of television programs, as it's called? How easily do you open up one of these pop-ups that comes up on your computer that's pornographic? Well, nobody will notice. How easily do you do that? Turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things. What do you read? Is it uplifting? Is it going to help you become a better king and priest? Or is it pretty sordid that you keep under your pillow so nobody else sees it? These are things we need to ask ourselves. David said, turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things. See, if we're studying the Bible, we read what's there. And we strive to do these things. We're going to be using a weapon that God gives us that's very powerful. Meditation, spending some time thinking about what you've read. I can read a couple verses, run off to work, got to get this done. No, take some time to think. What did I just read? Let me give you an example. Turn to Psalm chapter 1. I'd encourage you to read this a couple times and then think about it. Because what David is describing here is two ways of life. And the results of choosing one way or the other. He said, blessed is the man. And the word here in the Hebrew probably means about the same as the Greek. And the Greek blessed means to be envied. To be envied. How would you like people to look at you and say, you know, I'd like to live the way you do. I'd like things to happen in my life the way they're happening in your life. That's what it means. Blessed is the person who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. They don't listen to bad advice. And they'll be blessed for that. Nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Be careful who you hang around with. You hang around with people that are scornful, people that scoff at the Bible, 
people say, let's, let's do this over here. This is going to be a lot more fun. The advice is don't hang around with those people. But his delight, or the person's delight, is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season. You want a tree to grow, you've got to put it near water. You can put it out in the middle of the desert and nothing's going to happen because there's no water there. So he's likening a person who lives by the laws of God as a tree planted by the water that grows and bears fruit. But then here comes the contrast, verse 4. But the ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. You hang around with the wrong people. You start doing the wrong things. You're going to mess up your life, and you're going to be blown away. Verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He understands, he recognizes, he sees, but the way of the ungodly will perish. That's the outcome. That's the outcome. If we think about these things, I encouraged our boys growing up. I said, watch this person. Watch that person. Notice what they're doing and watch what happens to them over the next several years. And then connect the dots. The bad things just didn't happen out of the blue. I think I've shared this story before. Whenever our boys were, my oldest boy was graduating from high school. Uh, They had graduation parties after graduation. And one of the kids, actually several of the kids, were riding in a car. They'd been drinking, you know, graduation in the United States in some cases. Stay up all night, don't need sleep, just do whatever, run around. They were driving home, hit a bridge, and killed several of the kids. And, of course, there was a lot of crying at school and big announcements. We're going to have a special assembly to remember these kids. But whenever my son told me that what happened, I said, What time was the accident? What time was the accident? What does that have to do with it, Dad? They're dead. I said, what time? Well, it was about 3.30 in the morning. About 3.30 in the morning. What are you doing at 3.30 in the morning driving around after you've been drinking, doing things you shouldn't be doing? See, there are consequences, and these consequences were permanent. Maybe not everybody in the car was drinking. Maybe just a driver. But if you happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, then the consequences are going to occur. And you might have not done anything bad. But you were with a crowd of people or with some people that were doing things that were, were, were wrong. And then the consequences come. We need to connect the dots. The sooner we connect the dots in life, the easier and the better our life is going to be. If we're never able to connect the dots, you're going to get into one problem, then another problem, then another problem, because you're not connecting things. David is talking about two different ways of life. One works, one brings blessings. Another one doesn't work and brings consequences. These are things we need to think about. Fasting, is a way of humbling ourselves before God, 
helps us realize I can't do it on my own. I need food. But we need spiritual food if we're going to survive in this world. We could talk a lot more about that. And sometimes the only time we fast is when we want something. God, I really want this really bad, so I'm going to fast about it. Read Isaiah chapter 58, several of the verses there, where Isaiah says, Is this the fast that I've chosen just to do things for yourself? No, I've chosen a fast that's beyond yourself, that's bigger, fast for reasons that are bigger than yourself. That God would bless his work, that he would provide the resources and the personnel to finish the work. Fast that Christ would come soon. You have these pictures of these little kids in Syria where there's, there's snow, you know, snowstorms right now. They're living outside in a tent. I've walked by those tents over there. <laughs> Nothing on the ground. Wind blows through. Little kids are standing there trying to keep warm. That needs to change. We come home to air-conditioned houses in the summer and nice warm houses in the wintertime, but thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people don't have these things. They need help. They need someone to intervene on their behalf. And we're being molded and fashioned and prepared to do that. The biggest weapon that we have to use, brethren, is God's Spirit. God's Spirit. We're told in Romans chapter 8 that we're not Christians, verse 6 to 9, unless we have God's Spirit. The only way to get that Spirit is to repent of the way of life that we've been living that's wrong, be baptized, make a commitment to God, Acts 2.38, to literally, God, I want to walk in your footsteps. We're told in Acts 5.32 that God gives his spirit to who? To whoever wants it. No, he gives his spirit to those who obey him, that keep his commandments. See, there are conditions that are there. Then we've got to nourish that spirit and strive to bear fruit with that spirit because that's our secret weapon, really. It's a very powerful weapon. I'm going to give you one example out of history. In the 1300s, the English were fighting the French. They had some claims to French land. So they brought an army over from England. They were outnumbered by the French. But at the Battle of Agincourt, they chose the battle site. It was a field. I think it had just been plowed or turned over, and it was wet. And it was between two woods. The English army that was outnumbered got at one end of that field. The French army had a lot of knights uh, on horses and armor and everything. But it was such a narrow area that they couldn't bring their big army to, to bear. They had to just send so many up through the field at one time. Well, horses that are carrying armed knights and probably weighted down with armor are slogging through the mud. So they couldn't come very fast, and the English knew that. So that was one of the things they did. But the English had a weapon that the French didn't have. It was called a longbow. And not just bows and arrows. These longbows would shoot about 400 yards. 400 yards. They were accurate at 100 yards, length of a football field. And they were shooting steel-tipped arrows that would penetrate armor. 
and they literally slaughtered the French because they had a secret weapon. But, you know, it wasn't secret. Seventy years earlier, they'd used longbows at the Battle of Crecy and beat the French there. The French didn't learn. They hadn't learned. They still kept coming with their lances and their swords and their shields and these arrows coming down out of the air. The English had a weapon that the French didn't have. We have a spiritual weapon, God's spirit, that if we nourish that spirit, we learn to use that spirit, we're going to be able to win these spiritual battles. Brethren, God has called us to become part of his family. He's called us to be part of his church. He's preparing a group of people to reign with Jesus Christ on this earth, to bring peace to this earth, to show people the way to eternal life, to reign with Jesus Christ. He needs individuals who develop character, who develop the character of Jesus Christ, the character of God, to think like Jesus Christ would think. He's preparing that group of people today. As we fight these spiritual battles, and we all have battles to fight, but if we fight these battles with a determination to win, I'm going to use the tools and the weapons that God has given me. I'm going to take time to pray. I'm going to take time to study. I'm going to develop a plan for dealing with this problem that I have in my life. I'm going to choose the high ground. I want to obey God so that he can then mold me and fashion me and use me to be a very powerful instrument in his hands to show other people how they can win the spiritual battles that they have to fight. Brethren, let's focus on what we have to do. Let's determine I want to be in the kingdom of God. Use the tools that God has given us so that we can win these battles and be there when Jesus Christ returns so that we can help mankind.